So we're going to be talking again today about the gates of Nehemiah. We started this series, Nehemiah, uh, a while ago. Uh, We're on week 11 of it now. There are 10 gates in Nehemiah. We've been taking each one per week. We're going to finish the gates next week, but we won't finish Nehemiah for three more weeks. There's actually more to Nehemiah than the gates. But the gates are important because they are symbolic of the Christian life and phases we go through, stages we go through in the Christian life. I believe it's also symbolic of the life of this particular church. So we've been walking through them, kind of looking for personal revelation as well as biblical revelation as we go through. And to this week that we're on something called the East Gate. Let me show you the place in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 3.29. Now next to them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Shemamiah, the son of Shekaniah, the guard of the east gate made repairs. So uh, they built that up on the east gate. Now the east gate today looks something like this. And if you look at it closely, those of you who are close enough to see the screen, uh, it kind of looks more like a wall than a gate. And there's a reason for that. And I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But first I want to talk about the importance of the east gate. It is sometimes called the beautiful gate. It's also sometimes called the Golden Gate, no relationship to the bridge. Uh, so this, this is a very important gate in Christian and Jewish uh, heritage, and it's very important to us as well. Let me, uh, let me show you probably the most famous things as far as a Christian church that happened in the East Gate. Uh, it's, and this is kind of a really good time to talk about this because we're in that season right now. As they approached Jerusalem, New Testament, Matthew 21, And came to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples ahead, saying, Go to the village, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So the disciples went, and they did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Of course, we know those branches were palm branches. Gives us our tradition of something called Palm Sunday. Jesus entered Jerusalem on the road from the Mount of Olives, and the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Here's the point. The Messiah entered Jerusalem through the East Gate. Now, that's very important because there's actually prophecy that said the Messiah would come entering through the East Gate. Now, you may wonder sometimes when you're going through uh, the New Testament and we're talking about the prophecies from the Old Testament that got revealed and and fulfilled in the New Testament, why the traditional Hasidic Jew and and the traditional uh, Jewish people don't just embrace Jesus as the Messiah. Well, the reason they don't is because they have a little checklist that they have put together what the Messiah will be, that they have been taught over generations. Now, of this checklist, we did this once in church, almost all all of them, uh, except for one, has a biblical reference. And they talk about, you know, he'll be descendant of David, and he'll be born in the city of David, and they talk about all these different things that the Messiah will do, you know, healing the sick and and casting out demons, all these things that the Messiah will do. But there's one tick on their box that Jesus doesn't check, and that is he will be a warrior king. They believe that the Messiah coming from the line of David, who was a warrior king, will be a warrior king and will bring Jerusalem back to prominence. And they're waiting for a warrior to arrive, and that's why they missed it when the Savior of the world arrived 
instead. And so they, because that little tick box, by the way, which has no biblical reference for it, uh, because that hasn't been checked, they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But we do, and because of that, we can see some things about the prophecy which have already come true that they're still waiting for. So uh, this comes into play when it comes to why is that gate look a lot like a wall. Well, what happened was after, of course, the Roman Empire starts crumbling, Jesus was alive during the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, and when that starts crumbling, it they start being attacked from all sides, and different, uh, different kind of Mongols and Ottoman and Turks and all these things start invading Roman cities. One of them is Jerusalem, and it gets torn down. It gets actually, you know, brought down to rubble, which Jesus prophesied would happen, by the way, and then later on, they built it back up on top of the rubble. And that's what happened in Jerusalem. So the gate is located in the northern third of the temple of the Mount's eastern wall. And the, the present gate was probably built in about 520. So, you know, somewhere around 500 years after Jesus lived. As part of Justinian's building program in Jerusalem. And it was probably built on top of the, the ruins of the earlier wall. So the wall that Nehemiah built that we're talking about was torn down. And this was built up using that as its foundation. Now, Ottoman Sultan... Solomon, the Magnificent, you could just call him the Magnificent One, that's part of his title, rebuilt it, but he walled it up in 1541. And it has stayed that way ever since. Now, they don't know exactly why he um, built it and uh, walled it up, but there is a tradition, a rumor, uh, kind of local history around that subject that was told at the time. And, and what happened was he was talking to some Jewish rabbi, and he heard about this Messiah, the warrior king, who was to enter through the East Gate. And so he called all the rabbis and messiahs that he could get his hands on together, and he asked them more about this warrior king who was supposed to come back and, and restore Jerusalem. And they told him, you know, he will be entering into the east gate and the prophet Elijah will come before him. That's all prophesied. And so he decided, well, I'm going to fix that. So he walled the gate up. And then, in fact, after he did that, uh, he put a cemetery in front of it uh, and he buried Muslim soldiers there because his belief was there's no way a holy man such as Elijah would ever desecrate himself by walking across the graves of Muslims. So he's like, okay, now I've got it fixed. I've got it walled off and I've got Elijah taken away because he won't walk across those things. The problem, of course, was the Messiah had already come. He was talking to the wrong people. He was talking to the, the ancient Jewish traditions, not the new Christian religion, or he would have understood that it was too late for that. In fact, uh, Proverbs puts it this way, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. I love that verse because that's what happens here. What happens is the magnificent one who thinks he's uh, kind of doing the Jewish uh, prophecy dirty and he's going to fix it so it can't happen actually ends up fulfilling Jewish prophecy. Let me show you that. So in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is having this vision and the angel brings him to Jerusalem to talk about what's going to come in Jerusalem's history and it does it several times. So there's three times he brings him to the east gate starting in Ezekiel 10. The glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim which had been an angel and when the angels departed they lifted their wings and rose up from earth in my sight with wheels beside them. So they like went up like on chariots. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of God of Israel hovered over them. So that's the first time he's brought there. He's brought back again in Ezekiel 11 and the angels lifted up their wings with wheels again beside them and the glory of God of Israel hovered over them and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which was east of the city and that's actually Mount Olives. So we know that Jesus came from Mount of Olives down into 
uh, the east gate. So this is prophetic of what's going to happen in Jesus' day. But then I want you to see this all the way up now in Ezekiel 44, much later, much later in the prophecy, he comes back to the east gate again. And he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut and it shall not be opened and no man shall enter by it because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. In other words, the east gate has been shut and waits for the return of the Messiah. So the magnificent one who thought he was ruining prophecy actually fulfilled that part of the prophecy. It will stay shut until Jesus Christ comes back on the Mount of Olives and walks to Jerusalem. And believe me, no cemetery is going to worry him and that gate's going to blow open for him. So that's what's going to happen in the end times. And that's what this gate's about. It's about expectation for Jesus' return. Now I just want to say one thing real quickly because if we don't have an expectation for Jesus' return, Christianity is simply not going to make sense to you. And, and I've, I talk about this in story arcs on TV. I don't know if you've um, ever paid attention to this, but I used to be a huge TV fan. don't hardly watch it anymore. But uh, you have this half-hour sitcom, and it has a story arc. Have you ever noticed that in the sitcom, the classics, they always get into trouble in the first half, and it's always solved by the last half of it. So you have 30 minutes and it's always resolved in 30 minutes. So there's this short little story arc. But if you watch a, an hour long, you know, procedural drama or something, a lot of times, you know, th that, that goes much longer. So the, the, the problems that they run into take longer and then it takes longer to solve them. You have a 60 minute story arc. What's happened today in the modern storytelling world, like something like Game of Thrones, is things don't get solved at all in that hour of television. It, it may last the whole season, it may last for several seasons, and it goes on and on and on. Well, what happens to us is we kind of live this arc here on Earth, and we think that everything needs to be resolved here on Earth. And if it doesn't, we start getting frustrated because it didn't get fixed. But God's arc is much longer than ours, and His arc includes the time in Heaven. So when He says everything will be taken care of, He's talking about that arc that includes Heaven. And if we don't believe Jesus is coming back, and we don't believe that there is this place that, that, that He's going to take us to, to live with Him, then a lot of things that happen on Earth, I'm just warning you, aren't going to make sense. There are some things that will never make sense on earth. They will only make sense when we finally get to heaven. And not because it gets revealed to us, but because it doesn't get finalized until there. God's not limited by your time on earth, is the point. And he's going to take care of things like he promised he will, but that includes eternity. And right now that seems foolish to us, like, oh man, why can't we get it taken care of here? But later we'll come and we'll look back at the very small time we spent on earth and the huge time we spent, spent with him in heaven and we'll wonder why we cared so much about what was going on on earth. But today we don't have that perspective. So I'm just cautioning you that you can't take Jesus coming back out of the Christian equation and hope that it, it's going to make sense because it's not. However, having said that, I always like to try to bring us something out of the Word that's good for us today. Because you know, while we're waiting for Jesus' return, we're still living here on earth. And so I prayed about this for some time. I said, God, what is the message for us that we should take from the, from the Eastern Gate? And um, he took me to this place in Luke. And so this is um, to talk about the readiness for his return. Now Jesus tells us, I'm coming back and you don't know when. Not only that, I'm coming back after the time you've given up on me coming back. It's, he's warning us in advance it's going to take a lot longer than you think it's going to. And boy, has he been right. It's been over 2,000 years. And in the day of, of his apostles and disciples, they thought he'd be back in their lifetime. 
Uh, and he didn't, obviously. And so in 2,000 years later, we're still waiting for his return. So he warned us, this is going to take longer than you think. And for whatever reason, we, we weren't explained why, but for, for whatever reason, it's going to take longer. But he tells us to be vigilant and be diligent and not give up waiting. And this is a little parable he tells about this. He says you need to be dressed in readiness. That's action clothes. That's not pajamas. It's you're ready. He said always be ready. Be ready for my return. Don't, don't lounge around and get lazy. Be ready. Keep your lamps lit. We're going to come back to that. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from a wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him whenever he comes and knocks. He says, be waiting. As soon as you see him coming, boy, they can't wait to open the door. Welcome home. Welcome home. You need to be, you need to be diligent like that. You need to be vigilant like that. I don't know if any of you uh, have the blessing of a dog in your home, but boy, aren't they diligent. Uh, they, they're, they're a little bit lucky because they got these high sensitive ears and stuff so they can hear. But it is amazing, isn't it, that you can come in at two o'clock in the morning and, and if you have a dog that hasn't seen you, he'll come to greet you and like so excited to see you, meet you at the door. Sometimes they sleep and they have to get off the couch or whatever. Uh, but Jesus is saying the, the, the really vigilant person waiting for him. isn't like that dog sleeping even on the couch who will get up and come. He's saying he'll be there at the door waiting, looking out the door, waiting, waiting, waiting for when the master returns. But he says to be ready and to keep our lamps lit. He says this too, by the way. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds on alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, watch this, he will gird himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and he will come up and wait on them. This is an amazing picture. He says, the master comes home and he's so proud of those servants who are waiting for him. He says, you know what? You've been waiting a long time. Have a seat. I'm going to serve you food. I'm going to take care of you now. You, you've been waiting for so long. Now I'm going to take care of you. And this is Jesus telling you, when you're waiting for him and he returns, he's going to say, I'm so proud of you. Now come into my rest and let me take care of you. It is a beautiful uh, picture that you know, usually gets lost in this master-servant kind of verbiage that sometimes we use in Christianity. But he said, I'm going to take care of you because you've been vigilant. And he says, you have to wait. Even if he comes to the second watch or the third watch, if he finds them, they are going to be blessed servants. We need to be alert and keep our lamps lit. Now, Jesus gives this nice little picture of people waiting for him to come home from a feast. What I'm finding in my life as I get a little bit older is, is my life's not quite as peaceful as that. And I need to keep the fire lit, but I need to keep the fire lit not just because I'm waiting, but because there are things in the darkness, it seems, that are coming after me. Take this. Wave it at anything that slithers. Oh, thank God. This whole place is slithering. That's how my life goes. So when, when God says that until I return, need you keep your lamps lit, I'm like, amen. If the fire keeps the snakes away in the darkness, I need more fire. How do I get that? Where do I get this? Well, it's very important because the psalmist tells us the word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. So he's basically saying your lamp is my word. My word given to you is like a light for you, and it will guide you. Well, I want to be guided. I want to be guided through the darkness. That's great. But how in the world uh, do I get that? I know that the light of God is the only thing that can push back the darkness of the world, but how do I keep Jesus' word on fire in my life? And I, I talk to Christians all the time who tell me, you know, I just don't, 
I just don't feel on fire for the Lord now like I used to. I mean, I think we all kind of go through that. I want to be. I know I should be. I seem to have lost my connection with God somehow. I know it's not Him. I know it's me. I, I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how I can break through this malaise I'm in. I just kind of feel the doldrums spiritually. I can't seem to reconnect to God. Have you ever felt that way? Well, good news. Jesus has a little parable the other side of this one, that he describes that situation as well. And this time, instead of talking about it from the terms of the men waiting, he's talking about bridesmaids, women. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps, again the lamps, and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were foolish, but five were prudent or wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. The prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. And the secret, you see, to keeping your fire lit is in the oil. He says, a lot of them are really foolish. They didn't think about the oil. They just grabbed the lamp and ran. That's stupid. You need to think ahead. It's going to be a while. He's warning you. It's going to be a long time. You're not going to take it with the fire you have. You need to have oil with you as well. And this makes sense from lamps, but it makes sense in our life too. A lot of times we get a picture of Jesus, we go running off with it. Oh, great, I'm going to go accomplish great things. And what we find out is that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And we run out of the flame that we initially had, and we have nothing to replenish it with. And we get worn out, and we get exhausted, and we get discouraged. The devil comes in and says, well, did you really feel that to begin with? And we start doubting ourselves. We start doubting our faith. We start doubting Jesus. We start doubting everything. We get angry, and we get bitter. And this is what happens when you don't take the oil with you. What's the oil? Okay, so now we know the word of God's the fire. We need the lamp that push back the darkness. What is the oil? Well, the oil in the Bible, whenever it's used, is always describing the Holy Spirit. So let me show you in Exodus 30. This is one of the first times this is shown. You shall make from these, he's, this is God commanding Moses, a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. In other words, this isn't just thrown together. This is carefully made. It shall be a holy anointing oil. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them and they may minister to me as priests. Here's the thing. The purpose of the oil was first off, first and foremost, to consecrate us. Consecrate us. Now consecrate is a strange word. I even have a hard time pronouncing it sometimes. We don't use the word very much in co common uh, English language. It means many things, but it means to sanctify. But watch this. It's to prepare by setting it apart. You know, when, when God wants to use somebody, the first thing he does is he calls them out. He pulls them away from the crowd. He, he says, I need to speak to you directly. Come here for a moment. He does that with Moses. He calls him out. And you're standing on holy ground. He does that with David. He anoints him and sends him back out into the field where he can talk to him. We see this with Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon him and he pulls him out into the wilderness. We, we see this all throughout the Bible that God will consecrate us by setting us apart. So much of the problem is we want the anointing of the Holy Spirit, but we don't want to be set apart. God, I really am too busy with my life to move right now. If you could just anoint me here, it would solve a lot of my problems. I'll take your power when I need it, but I'm busy. I'm busy doing stuff. And usually a stuff has to do with making my life better. I need a bigger house. I need a better car. I need a better job. I need a wife. I need a better wife. I need a girlfriend. I need a better girlfriend. I need a husband. I need a better husband. Whatever. We're always trying to make things better, work harder. I'm working on my life here, Lord. I want your anointing. Don't get me wrong. I want to be saved. Don't get me wrong. But I really wish you would join my life here and help it out 
instead of pulling me out of the rest. And so many times I meet Christians who, who believe in God, believe in Jesus. Maybe they had some kind of an experience, maybe when they're young in, in you know, youth group or some kind of a camp retreat, or maybe just recently, but they've kind of lost that fire and they can't understand why. And one of the reasons why is because you were never pulled apart. You never changed anything about your life. You kept doing exactly what you were doing, changed nothing except maybe going to church occasionally. And what you found out was your fire burned out because you don't have the oil. The oil comes when you get set apart. Here's the thing. If you have a sinner friend, let's say, you know, we all do, and especially if you just got saved recently, a lot of friends are sinners and they go out, they party and they pull you out with them and they do things and you go out and have fun with the guys or fun with the girls. And you're doing all these things, right? Uh, and somebody walked in and was told, hey, there's a Christian in that crowd. Do you know who they are? And they can't pick you out. There's something wrong. Now, let me put it this way. Um, if you're saved and have a friend who's a sinner and people can't tell the difference between you, one of you is doing it wrong. And, and, and just a little spoiler alert, it's not the sinner because they're really good at what they do. But you should be, people should know you're different. You should be set apart. Uh, or another way to put it is if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If the answer is no, then you were never set apart. And if you were not set apart, the Holy Spirit's anointing cannot fill your lamp because you haven't been set apart. So the first thing we need to do is that. Well, I've been talking about the Holy Spirit. And some people say, well, how do I get this Holy Spirit? And do I even want the Holy Spirit? Because it's kind of a controversial issue in the church today. Strangely, there's a lot of people, whole denominations that don't believe in, in any kind of a powerful Holy Spirit in their lives. They want to tell me the Holy Spirit, in fact, one very, very famous preacher said, the Holy Spirit's like the operating system of Christianity. It's in the background doing things, but you never see it. Um, so first of all, as a computer programmer, uh, it, my, for my day job, who sees the operating system cause problems all the time, I'm offended by that for the Holy Spirit. Uh, but beyond that, the Holy Spirit is supposed to be more than just that, something silent in the background working that you never see. But there are a lot of people, that's all they want the Holy Spirit to be. They don't want the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives because they're afraid of the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so let me just take a moment and, and explain this. You know, we're Spirit Chapel. That always makes people nervous. Uh, spirit Chapel, does that mean that you're like this weird Pentecostal church? When we get there, there's going to be all kind of weird things going on. Uh, we do believe in full gifts of the Holy Spirit. We don't we don't have any of them exemplified here uh, in, in, a, in a disruptive way during our service because we believe that God is a God of orders, order, not chaos. And we want anybody who walks into the church to feel comfortable in the service. That doesn't mean that we don't believe in the entire full line of the gifts of the Spirit as outlined in the Bible because we do. And we, we would, our desire as a church is that everybody here experiences the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Because the power of the Holy Spirit in your life will change things. Now, I've had a couple moments in my life, and I'm, I want to be clear on this. It's maybe been five in my entire life. When I have felt the presence of the Lord so strongly, it was like he was there, right? I can't say I saw him. I can't even say that I audibly heard him, but I sensed him so strong that my whole being just went alive. It's just a very strange feeling, and it's only happened five times, and it's happened in weird times for me. And when I say weird, it's like not the times you would think. Like, I would love to tell you. It would be great if I told you, hey, before we start Spirit Chapel, the Holy Spirit entered the room and told me to start this church called Spirit Chapel and told me where, and you know, oh man, that'd be great if I could tell you that story, but that didn't happen. In fact, those of you who know how Spirit Chapel started, it was almost against my wishes and me kicking and screaming the whole way. Almost by accident, we started Spirit Chapel. It did not happen that way. Other times he's popped in in my life and, and really kind of spoke to my spirit 
spirit to spirit, not audibly, in, in a very powerful way. Uh, once when I was driving, I've told that story before, I'm not going to go into it now, but I was driving it last about two minutes, but I felt the presence of God in the car so strongly, it, it was like he was there, and I knew he was there. So here's some things that I've talked to other people about. Uh, in fact, recently I've, I've had a chance to talk to some people who've had similar experiences, and there are some things that kind of parallel my experience. First of all, uh, it happens on his watch, not yours. <laughs> you, can, you can't set your alarm clock. The Holy Spirit will get to me on this time. No, the Holy Spirit does it on his time. And so you have to understand that. Second of all, uh, it is a very emotional thing. I call it emotional, but I can't tell you what emotion. It's like you're happy and sad at the same time. Um, you're, you're excited and frightened at the same time. It's like every emotion you can imagine is just there. It's like your whole body comes alive. And I really think that what it is is just a spiritual feeling that we don't normally have because uh, we live disconnected so much from God. But when he, we get him, like all those nerve endings, all those spiritual nerve endings in your body come alive, you know, and suddenly you're feeling what you're supposed to feel. Uh, and so, but it's, it's a very emotional thing. It's not... It doesn't make you weird. It doesn't do strange things to you. Uh, I was driving a car. I did not wreck. I did not swerve. I did not lose control of the car. None of that happened, uh, even though I felt the presence of the Lord very, very strongly. It lasted two minutes, but it could have been two hours. It's not that you forget time. Time no longer matters. There's a difference between that. It's not like later on I'm surprised how long it took. It's, it's that you don't care anymore. It's just like you're, you're talking with the infinite God. Time no longer matters. The other thing that uh, I have compared notes with some other people, and they kind of sheepishly admit this, and I'll admit it, uh, I was afraid it was going to happen again the next day. Because even though it was not painful, it wasn't scary, it was actually really cool and exhilarating, uh, I laughed and I cried, you know, at the same time. It was just this wonderful feeling uh, of almost euphoria, but you don't want to, uh, I... I was speak, speak personally. Don't want, didn't want to happen again. In fact, when I drove by that place the next time, I kind of like you know leaned a little bit in my car. I I didn't want it. Why? I don't know. There is this thing in the Bible discussed called the fear of the Lord. And I think when you stay in the presence of God, you can't do it very much, especially when you you know you're sinful. And so there is that. But here's the reason why you want the Holy Spirit in your life. Because in that moment, I could have prayed for anything, and it would have been answered because I had faith for everything. When the Holy Spirit's there so strongly, it, I mean, I didn't, probably should have, you know, because, boy, that's the time. My faith was so strong. I mean, I, you can't doubt God when God's there. And you can't doubt his power and his wisdom when he's there. It was just so amazing. And if I had prayed for anything, I'm convinced I would have had the faith to believe. Because it's just so strongly upon you. And I honestly believe that Jesus walked around like this. This was Jesus' life. This was his connection with the Spirit of, of the Lord and his Father. He had that connection. He'd go off in the morning, he'd pray, he'd connect like that, and he walked around the power of the Lord. And we get it in glimpses and small you know, starts and sparks, and that's it. But I really believe that God wants to take us to a place where it's longer periods. Paul had an experience like this, he describes in the Bible, where we're supposed to have these moments where we really feel what it's supposed to be. And if we ever feel that, we'll start understanding that not only is God real, but there's something beyond this world waiting for us. And it's kind of powerful. So how do we get the Holy Spirit if you want it? How do you get it? Well, how about that? Jesus tells us how to get it. And this is one of the most misused scriptures in the Bible. Faith preachers use this all the time and misuse it. They take it out of context. I'm going to read it to you in its context. And I, I want you to see this. This is very, very clear. Uh, so it says this. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. 
Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks find. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. So that's, you've, I'm sure you've heard this uh, before. I'm sure you've heard this, this scripture before. Uh, this, is, this is where it always starts. But I want, you sh- I want to show you where it goes from here. For if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give them a stone? Like, of course not. He said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I want you to see that that verse is given in the context of, you know what? If you ask for the Holy Spirit, God's going to give it to you. And it's not going to be bad the same way you wouldn't give something bad to your son when they ask for something. You would give something good to them. And if you're evil and do that, why would you think the Holy Spirit's bad? Why would you think God's going to give you the gifts of the Spirit and it's going to be bad? Don't be afraid of it. Jesus is saying this. Is take it. Just ask for it. Knock, ask, and, and receive it. Once you have it, it's the Holy Spirit's job to pull you apart, make you different. That's fine. Not in a weird way, but in a right way. And the second thing, it's supposed to keep your lamps lit. It fills you with the oil. And it keeps the Word of God alive in your life. And it keeps you from losing your, your vigilance in waiting for Jesus and doing all the things that you have to do for the Lord. So what happens to people then? Because there are some people who really fill with the Spirit and they, they go off the rails. You know, what happens? Well, what happens is we do it. It's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never, never changes. But the Holy Spirit's a gentle spirit. It doesn't force its way into your life. It never will. will never come where it's not asked and won't stay where it's not wanted. And you have to understand that about the Holy Spirit. So if we've lost this, it's because we've quenched the Holy Spirit. And that quenches the flame of God's word in our life. And then we're just trying to do this in our own strength, in our own might, in our own power. And guess what? You will fail. I promise you you will fail because everybody who's ever tried that has failed. There are a couple places in the Bible where they talk about either quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk about them real quickly before we finish. Uh, So in Thessalonians, we actually talked about this last week, 1 Thessalonians 5. Pray without ceasing in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. So many people want to throw everything out. I don't know if I can believe this, so I'm going to throw everything out. He says, no, don't do that. Don't despise prophetic gifts. What you do is you examine them. You pray, and you examine them, and you hold fast to that part which is true, and you throw away that part which is not. And then in Ephesians uh, 4, Paul says this, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold in your life. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Now, the word there for grieve is very interesting. Uh, some of you have gone through losing some of you love very much and you know what grief is. Uh, most people, I think, by this you know, time in their lives, they've lost somebody. And when you lose somebody who's close to you, what grief is, it's when somebody you love, who loves you, is suddenly removed from your life. And you no longer can love them or receive love from them. And there's something missing in you, and you grieve. That's what grief is. 
And so it sneaks up on you at the strangest places where you'll suddenly remember this is a person, this is a place where that person and I would share this moment and you don't, you can't do it anymore and you feel that loss and it just overwhelms you. And that's why a lot of people like they, they lose somebody, they think they're fine, then all of a sudden they'll find themselves crying like a baby and they don't know why. That happened to me. Uh, we started Spirit Chapel in November. My father passed away on the 26th of December of that same year. It was incredible. I thought I was fine. You know, I went out there, did the eulogy for his funeral. I uh, thought I was doing really well, but then things would happen in the church and I would like want to call my dad and I couldn't, you know. It was just, there's a loss there that even still today I feel and, and you'll never get that back. So I want you to see though what Paul is describing. Your sin, this, allowing yourself to be angry, allowing yourself to be bitter, allowing bitter things to come out of your mouth and not building other people up, but tearing them down. This, he says, is grieving the Holy Spirit. When you do that, it's like you've been pulled away from the Holy Spirit and a person that he loves who used to love him is no longer there. That's what he's describing. It's not a little sin. Do you get that? It's not, oh, it's a little sin. I'll just go ask God, forgive me. It'll be fine. No, he's saying he's grieving over you right now. It takes him a while to get through the grieving process of losing you. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say this. He says, you need to get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. He says, this, all this ends up quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit. So those of you who don't want the Holy Spirit in your life, I have a public service for you. I'm going to teach you how to quench the Holy Spirit so you won't have it. Those of you who are wise will just simply flip this around the other way and realize that this is what I don't want to do if I want the Holy Spirit in my life. So first of all, pray only when necessary. If you don't want the Holy Spirit on power in your life, pray only when you have to. You know, when things get bad, then pray. The rest of the time, don't bother. Give thanks only when God gives you what you want. If, if that's, you know, you don't want the Holy Spirit, this is what you do. Don't thank him for everything. Just thank him when he actually answers your prayer. You know, you'll teach God. Mock the Holy Spirit's prophetic gifts. This is going on big time today in the church. People mock the gifts by mocking the people, and they're misunderstanding things, and they're despising prophecy. Just go ahead and do that. The Holy Spirit will not be with you or your church or your family. Accept everything your favorite teacher says. I know some people that whatever says it, you know, it's like they're, they're speaking for them. You know, we don't have a pope in Protestant. We have every pope. You know, every teacher tells you, you need to listen to me because I've got the word right. I'm telling you right now, uh, check everything I say with the Bible. And where it doesn't line up, you let me know and we'll talk about it because you might be right. You know, I may have gone off. Please don't ever take what I say as gospel. I don't speak the gospel. I teach it, but Jesus spoke the gospel. Let's just watch, watch it and compare it against the, the scriptures. But if you accept everything your teacher says, I promise you, you will end up quenching the spirit. Also, ignore God's truth if you don't like the source. You know, as long as that person there, you can find something wrong with them. Anything at all, you know. Well, they were speeding the other day. Uh, you know, boy, I can't possibly listen to a pastor who would break the speeding law, even though as you're thinking that you're speeding. You know, it's just crazy how people want perfection for their teachers. So anything you can find, just go ahead and dis disregard everything they said, no matter how much the Spirit was trying to reach you with it, just throw it away. This is a good way of quenching the Holy Spirit. And finally, hold on to your right to sin. Boy, I get this all the time. I have a right to be angry. I have a right to be bitter. You know what? I have a right to go out and let loose with my friends, and that's fine. You know what? Uh, my boyfriend and girl, you know, my boyfriend's been around for a long time, and, you know, we've been, you know, sure, we've been hooking up, but we have a right to do that because we're in love. And, and just, just go down the list of all the things you've told God you have a right to, even though he's told you it's sin, and you hang on to that. Just keep on grabbing on to that, and you will keep quenching the Holy Spirit in your life. 
And you will never have the power that you need in order to do what you have to do, which is stay on fire for the Lord until he returns. You'll never see that great welcome from the Lord when he comes and says, man, I'm just so proud of you. You did it. Here, let me take care of you now. Enter into my rest and I, I will take care of you. We need to have the fire of the Holy Spirit in our life. We need to let the fire of God's word burn in our heart or we are never, ever going to live the lives we need to live as a church or as individual Christians. Would you all please pray with me?